It's Henry Rains, and I'm here and honored to be here because it's a special edition of the BradentonTimes.com podcast. And it's a little bit of a crisscross here because normally you would be listening to your host, Dennis Mitch Maley, but instead you're going to be listening to me interviewing Dennis Mitch Maley. Dennis, thanks for asking me to do this. My pleasure. Thank you, Henry. Wow. So you're already a published author. You've got three works out there, I can tell, because you're all over Amazon.com with your uh, bio there and things like that. And now you've got another book. And I would say it's probably the most timely book you've put out because you're coinciding with a 100-year anniversary of a major event in American U.S., United States of America history. And tell us what it is. It's Burn Black Wall Street Burn... What, what is the significance of that title? What is it you referring to? So we're talking about the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is referred to in the early part of the 20th century as Black Wall Street because it was such a prosperous area for African-Americans. And that kind of happened in an a unplanned accident in the sense that following the 1905 discovery of the Ida Glen oil field outside of Tulsa, which is to this day the largest oil discovery in the history of the United States, uh, a large field that was on par with what they call the the elephant fields in Saudi Arabia, those four massive uh, fields. And, you know, since, you know, Tulsa is not the oil producing capital of the world like it was back then, not even close. And one of the reasons was that giant pool was so close to the surface and so close to its refined state that it was very easy for them to get all of the oil out. Now, however, this caused this tremendous economy in Oklahoma and Tulsa. And, you know, one of the things that kind of came into focus with me in this story that I wasn't aware of was, you know, Oklahoma was only a state, only a chief statehood in 1907. You know, a lot of people, myself included, don't really think of it that way. That's, that's sort of a later state for, especially for, you know, how far east it is. Uh, one of the reasons was it, it was not very sought after land. It was very hard scrabble. It was very rocky soil. It, did, it was not great for crops. And until this discovery in 1905, there was not a lot of demand for Oklahoma land. And as a result, it was mostly Cherokee Indians and other Indians that had been pushed westward on the Trail of Tears, a lot of free black slaves. And like I said, really just a hard scrabble existence until oil is discovered. Now, two years later, you have statehood. And then by 1920, Tulsa goes from literally a cow town to a city of 100,000. They called it the magic city at the time because it seemed to just arrive out of thin air. And a that wealth created a lot of opportunity. And because Oklahoma opened as, at the time, the most segregated state in the union, that created sort, certain markets. And like I said, just sort of this accidental explosion of African-American wealth to the extent that there were a couple of African-American millionaires in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in 1920, which I was ignorant to. In fact, I did learn during that that there actually was the first African-American American millionaire happened in the late 1800s. It was a gentleman, a freed slave, who made his fortune on Wall Street. Uh, another interesting story in its own right. But, you know, how I got to this story was really the embarrassment of not knowing it. The first time hearing Black Wall Street and Googling it, you know, years and years back and seeing, wow, there's this racial massacre, you know, one of the darkest days in American history that happened 
on May 31st, 1921, into June 1st, Memorial Day, uh, that very few Americans know about. And it is one of the, I would argue that in terms of its place in history as a major event compared to the amount of people who are aware of its existence, there might not be a story in, you know, the American canon that that rivals it in terms of scope and breadth compared to, you know, its relative, you know, unknown status. Well, and sad to say, that is a pretty high bar that they've made. If that is, uh, in your opinion, the or one of the most horrific uh racial massacres, violent episodes of American history, because right here in Florida, we have Rosewood, Rosewood which is, yeah. I think, a similar time of the, yes. the, the century, and where a black a town was leveled and decimated, and a massacre occurred here in Florida. But coming back to this, uh, a little bit more sense of the time, because 1905, uh, back then, most people in the United States still lived in a rural setting. Uh, the certainly had the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, but it hadn't reached the the middle America. And you have, as you said, it was a home for reservations for displaced Native Americans. So who owned the land where the oil was? Was that still like, uh, in many cases, you know, we had those, uh, the Homestead Acts, and it was really the government giving land to individuals. Was that already land that was owned, or how, how did it... Well, you had a lot of, you know, probably a surprise to no one, you had a lot of investors uh, rush to the scene and buy up every little bit of land and, and rights they could get. And, you know, <laughs> there were a lot of fingers in the pie by the time it was getting divided up. So you had a wildly speculative time and, you know, so a fair amount of people who owned mineral rights beneath land that was involved in the pool and then selling it and reselling it. Uh, and eventually, you know, major American oil companies owned it. So someone owned it. It wasn't federal Correct. land. Yes. Okay. And, and I, I don't want to get too far into the history. Maybe we'll come back to that. Let me just remind people, turn around, fair play here. Uh, I'm interviewing your normal host, Dennis Mitch Maley, on his Four years in the making on this novel? It's, yeah. Uh, historical fiction uh, about a very sad incident in, in the history of the United States. And so why did, uh, we, you know, we, we can get the, the gravity of what you were uh, writing about, and you say you were sort of embarrassed by not knowing about it, but there had to be something a little bit uh, deeper in it, you know, for people that don't know, you've... Uh, you're in, been a, a fighter, a boxer in the past. You've been in the military. You've been a journalist, an author. What? Where did you find the greatest affinity for the story and the characters? I think the the idea. I've always been attracted to what I called orphan stories. Uh, you know, I just got recently finished with a three part series on Lincoln Memorial Academy, a charter school that was serving mostly black and brown children that you know, was doing great things in his community and was very controversially retaken by the district. And I'm not a an investigative journalist, as you know. So I'm an opinion columnist. And there have been a lot of times over the years, I, I have worked in, in, you know, freelance capacities, very limited in investigative journalism. It's not my favorite thing. 
you know, what you often find in journalists is, my experience anyway, is that you tend to get people who either love the writing or love the digging. And not always both. And in fact, a lot of times they seem a little bit mutually exclusive. And uh, like I remember one time I was paid a wonderful compliment by Jane Crowder, who was the executive editor of the uh, Bradenton Herald for a long time. And Jane had complimented me on my writing and said something to the effect of, I, the writing always terrified me. You know, I was always about the digging. I wanted to crack the story. Was, was her perspective. And th then once I did, it was like, oh my God, now I've got to write. And she goes, you know, that that, that was what brought me to editing. So uh, for me, it's always been the writing. I like the storytelling. I like the, the conveyance where the tedium that's often involved in investigative uh, journalism, the important tedium of digging through and sifting, you know, through so much information, most of which is of no use to you to find that little bit that is, isn't really geared for my personality, I would say. So when I've had to do that, that's kind of like, that's a not a labor of love, uh, to say the least. So, you know, there's been these stories where nobody's taken them on and or they haven't really been taken on in a way that they've gotten absorbed into the narrative. And I've sometimes felt like a challenge of, you know, it has to be done. So maybe if nobody else is going to do it, maybe you're, you're going to have to sink your teeth into it. And I've done that with a lot of stories. And there was something about this this one, you know, where I said, okay, this obviously isn't going to be a piece of journalism. Uh, there's been a lot of good nonfiction done about it. I'm, I'm not really interested in doing nonfiction when it comes to books because fiction's always kind of been my respite from journalism in, in that, you know, I like a break from the, the out into the ether, crank out a column every week, move on to the next one, churn them and burn them type pace of journalism to do something where you can really take your time and be a lot more thoughtful with, reflective with, and then also really ideally have a lot more staying power. You know, you're leaving behind something that will continue hopefully to say something about the human condition or our, our you know, collective narrative. So, you know, I like working in fiction, but there was something about this story that was so rich with characters and, you know, had just so much untold drama and, and just, you know, th there was its relevance today. So, you know, when I first started, I think, researching this, we were, you know, pretty much in the throes of, you know, the, the, the racial tension, you know, starting really probably with the uh the missouri incident michael brown yeah and ferguson in ferguson and i was writing on that and i i want to say it was right at that time when when i came up against some of the tulsa stuff and research and was just like wait a minute hold everything what's this story and i became like obsessed with it there was this old hbo documentary done in the 80s and like i said there were two really really good books that were done on it which i which i acknowledge and in mind, uh, one of them was Holocaust in the, in the Heartland. Um, and as I dug through this and and started seeing, you know, this is this is really, like I said, rich with with drama and so much that speaks to today. I just kind of thought, uh, I think I, I think well, I well, well, stepped into something to, I got to finish. To compliment know? you because as I was reading through. Uh, significant passages of this book at first good place to start is the first chapter and i am scrolling through it's on a pdf format for me so you, you scroll you don't turn pages mm -hmm. 
and I'm trying to get a sense of where it is, and I'm and I'm also preparing to to make notes for this this interview, and I'm, and I'm looking at name after name after name, and I'm like, how is Dennis? I mean, this is just going to be like, hello, who are you? Hello, who are you? But then as I started, actually went back after I looked at all the names and had a list and read it, it just flowed real naturally. And it was a, uh, there's a lot of other writers that have to do something like that. Yeah, you must have introduced, let me just, uh, in, indulge me just a second. Let me just take a quick look at my list here. There must have been, oh, I, I didn't catch everyone. And there must be two dozen names that you introduce and manage to knit them together in the first chapter. So you, if you're reading, you're ready to find out where these characters go. You don't need to wait till chapter three to find out who they You may get more background, but you don't need to find out who they are. And it flowed very naturally. It wasn't a forced exposition at all. So I would say to people that are considering reading uh, this book or, or looking for a book on the subject that you can find documentaries online. You can find the nonfiction, as you said, online. But if you want something that's going to reach you emotionally, and not that if you read the details of the incident in the nonfiction, you won't be touched, but this, this one gets you. Because those people at the first part of the book, when they're in the throes of the, um, the chaos of the end of the book, not the chaos of the writer, but the chaos of the actual historical events, um, it pulls you out. I, I, I had to take a, a moment and just sort of collect myself before I came over here, because I had just finished the end of it right before... Uh, I, I came over, and it, 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 it's an emotional read. It is something that um, you're, it's going to stay with you. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, that was definitely the biggest challenge. There's something when you're, when you're doing a story that has origins either in history, you know, like true life, or it's an adaptation of a book to a movie or something, there's, there's a term that writers use called cracking the story. And what that means is, you have this broad understanding of all these events that happen, but how do you get it into, you know, that platonic, you know, beginning, middle, end? How do you get that three-act narrative and, the, and that, those character arcs? And this is what's called an ensemble story. And, and I think one of the reasons, you know, there's been a lot of talk about adapting this to a movie for so long. And I think one of the, the reasons that hasn't happened is it's a very hard story to crack in that sense. It's it's hard because there are so many integral characters that you can't really do it with like honing in on just, you know, one aspect of it without losing so much and not understanding then so much of the expository drama that's that's creating this world that's kind of hard to imagine right now. You know, it, it wasn't like I said, in my historical understanding, to know that a hundred years ago, there was a city, you know, a micro city within a city of 10,000 people, prosperous African-Americans living in, you know, uh, uh, a place where they could access the kind of wealth and luxury that African-Americans nowhere else in the country really could. You know, Greenwood had, a theater on par with anywhere that you'd see in New York City or San Francisco at the time. And that, we have to say, that's when theaters of that nature yeah, were only about that 20 years old. Talk, right, I mean, right. the, the talkies hadn't even yeah. come in when that theater was there. So you had the Dreamland, you had a hotel that was on par with any on Park Avenue or in Paris or London. You had, you know, fine dining. 
that was on par with the you know the greatest gastro cities in the world at the time. So you this was like really really different. You had African Americans driving around in motor cars, expensive motor cars, jewelry shops, imported clothes. So that kind of of thing, and then understanding this is just like drip off wealth from the oil. I mean, yeah, like you look at Tulsa at the time, and I mean one of the stats was there was two million dollars a day moving between banks in the city. Back when $1 million was real money. Was re- yeah, and th- that's not adjusted for inflation. So yeah, put, put a couple of zeros right. on Right, so we're talking like, this was like Tulsa in 1920 was kind of like Dubai today. That's probably what you'd have to get to, is, is it was a place of obscene wealth in which, so one of the things Greenwood was dealing with was they were having a brain drain because you could drop out of high school and go wait tables in Tulsa and make more than a prosperous, otherwise prosperous doctor in Greenwood was making and come back and live in Greenwood like a king. So you had this like dual economy where across the Frisco tracks, you had blacks making service job money that then it was almost like when you'd hear people like living uh, in Mexico, like American retirees, like they're taking that money somewhere mm-hmm. else that was worth right. more. So you didn't have these like real scale market economies. You had these kind of just absolutely make no sense. There's so much money. We don't know what to do with it economies. And so the, the disparity between whites and blacks were still there, but the most pros- prosperous blacks in Tulsa were still far wealthier than typical whites other where in the state. And that kind of led to some of the tension that well, we Well, yeah, see. let's go back and, and remind people of the time period, because although we talked about 1905 oil being discovered, this happens in 1921, mm-hmm. 100 years ago, almost to the day as we're talking. Uh, but that's about two well, we, the The country had just come through the Spanish flu, a, a pandemic that killed, uh, I don't know how many people, but it was a huge disaster. I don't know if anybody can relate to something like that now, <laughs> but so you come out of this health disaster, for, and that came because the the World War One had just ended. Mm-hmm. So you had all these uh, soldiers coming back home. Uh, you had African American soldiers coming back home. It was a segregated army back then, uh, but we're still in that timeline. So you get the war, you've got the pandemic, and then you have this in Tulsa. Um, so there had to be, tell us a little bit about how the veterans tie into all this that, that were in Tulsa at that time. You, you painted a great picture of the, the prosperity of the, the, the black community there, and you told about the boom times of, of Tulsa in general, but what about the vets that had come back, these people that had just been in one of the most, the war to end all wars, the great war, the most violent war that the world had experienced, what was their place in Tulsa? Yeah, and I, I should I should preface that by saying that the majority of blacks were still living very hand to mouth, and and really it was just an incredible amount. So as as Tulsa kind of sprung up, they created what were at the time the single most segregated place in the in the country. That's saying uh, a lot, right? They were the only place known that had an ordinance saying that telephone booths were segregated. They're white-only telephone booths, um, you know, in addition to the fountains and everything else. But that's where that prosperity came from was because you were only allowed to live in Tulsa proper outside of Greenwood if you lived in serving quarters. 
and you still couldn't shop in stores for any personal items within Tulsa. So you had this population of house servants, gardeners, and other workers, shine boys and different different service workers in Tulsa that couldn't spend any of the money they made there in any of the stores. So it created this big commercial vacuum, and that's what the educated and industrious blacks in Greenwood figured out was, hey, if we put up shops and clothes and you know there's something there for it. So that's kind of the dynamics that created that prosperity. It was, certainly wasn't designed, it wasn't intended. It was kind of an accidental byproduct of the segregation and the racism was you had some very educated, mostly born free blacks who said, hey, I see opportunity there and they set that up. But to answer your question about the war, the war just ending, created a very important financial dynamic. And that was, while money was still, you know, coming through Tulsa faster than, than, than they could pick, scoop it up with both hands, it caused just the slightest bit of contraction. So you had all, the oil production was ramped up really high for World War I. And then when the armistice came, you had a glut for a period of time. So it was just like the fields were like, whoa, hold on, everybody stop. We've got a whole bunch of oil. We're going to sell it, but like, you know, things aren't quite ramped up the way they were. And that little bit of a pinch had an effect on a couple of things. One, you know how that works. Just like in today's economy, if there's a little pinch, just like in the, in the COVID uh, times, the people on the bottom tend to feel it first. You know, the people without the savings, the people without the investments, the people without, you know, the, the, the kind of jobs that can, that can weather those sort of storms. Uh, so you had the poor whites that were the first to feel that contraction. Now, soldiers, both sides coming home, you have the white soldiers coming home to Tulsa, having heard stories in the letters from home about this amazing thing that happened to their hometown while they were gone. And now it's just, wait, what? It's like a New York City in Tulsa and there's all this money. We're going to go home and work in the oil fields. We're going to stake our claim to it and get our riches as war heroes, only to come home and find out, oh yeah, we're not hiring in the fields right now. You know, calm down, the, things will go back to normal. Well, they didn't really want to hear that. And oh, by the way, looking over across the tracks, what happened to what they used to call Little Africa and why are all these people wearing suits and driving motor cars when I can't get on the oil field? So you had that kind of tension happening. Then you had black soldiers who, yes, they were segregated in the American army. They were not allowed in combat positions, but they did fight in the on the front with the French. So you had a lot of Buffalo soldiers coming back. Buffalo soldiers. Uh, so the term for the units uh, from the cavalry that fought earlier, um, these units of all black soldiers who, like I said, were not allowed in the American army in World War I to serve in combat. They were attached uh, to French divisions. Um, and they came home with a thought that Things are going to be different now. We're going to go home wearing the uniform. Let me ask you a question about that because they're attached to the French division. Mm -hmm. But my guess is that it was, although France has historically been more an open society, um, think of Josephine Baker sure. and, and, and entertainers like that. But I have to think that however open they were, the real reason that they got attached to the French army is they had been decimated by all yeah, the years of it, war. It they was absolutely out of necessity. You're right in terms that I don't think the French would have had the you know racial animus that would have prevented it but it was certainly out of necessity at that point you know there, there wasn't much of an issue but it also speaks to even when times were desperate for u.s commanders there was not 
a there was a thinking that well the the impact that would have on morale would be too great to even consider it. So you did have these you had this first class of of law of large class of black military veterans who had fought in a world war and now returned thinking we fought for our country. We fought for all of you. We fought for white people. We fought for black people. And we're going to be greeted differently when we return. We're going to come home in uniform. Uh, you know, I, there, there were some accounts that people, some of these African-American soldiers just walked into stores thinking, oh, that doesn't count anymore. I'm in uniform. I'm a U.S. soldier. I can go into any place in Tulsa I want. They quickly found out that was not the case. So now you have this kind of tension where you have white soldiers saying, why are we not getting in on the spoils of this city? You have black soldiers saying, we just fought for our country. Why are we still being you know, treated like second-class citizens? So there was a lot of, and then just a general economic downturn in, in this place that had been you know, kind of a can't-miss casino for five years created just probably a lot of the right tensions or the wrong tensions that set the stage for what would come. Because the Greenwood community relied on money that was coming from the wealthiest in Tulsa. So mm -hmm. there really wasn't that interruption. Uh, you know, the, the, when the wealthy have to cut back, they're still going to pay the servants yeah, each week. And yeah. they're not going to scrub those toilets themselves. But before we go into some of the, the characters in the historical fiction novel who are actually really people that were participated in this... Um, what you all described, what you described just then uh, of that community and how it functioned, actually it was just sort of the, four, although it was wealthy and uh, as we'll find out later, uh, in, I believe it's the first time uh, a civilian population had been bombed by you Airplane, know, yeah. fellow citizens in, in the, the U.S., but the other communities around the country didn't experience that, but very similar things happened, that, that different communities uh, grew entrepreneurs around the uh, black, the African-American mm -hmm. workers in that, and because of the way it was segregated, even, even in northern cities, there, there were black entrepreneurs serving the black community, and a lot of that got disrupted. Uh, if it got too prosperous, the incidents happened. There's there, there uh, some comments and lines in the story where they were talking about other uh, race riots that is what's the term, I guess, used back then around the country. And it wasn't necessarily an uprising of black uh, community members. It was actually a conflict between different uh, uh, whites and blacks or other ethnicities. In fact, I don't know if you, you're aware of this, um, but right in Palmetto... I think I actually read it in the brainoftimes.com, so you probably edited the story. Uh, Marib wrote about the gun battle yeah. that was in the streets of Memphis, pa pa Palmetto yeah. the, Memphis between Taylor. the turpentine right. workers and the orange pickers. And when yeah. uh, I think the blacks were the turpentine workers, and when there wasn't any work for the, the white orange pickers, they wanted the turpentine jobs, and it, it came down to gunfights in the mm -hmm. streets of Palmetto around about this same 19, early 1900s. Yeah, I mean, that's the history of not only our society, but so many others where you have, there's always tension among the poor in any free market society. And it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, one of my favorite books ever is uh, called The Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Explanation of History by Howard Bloom. And what he talks about is 
really the science behind why we do so many human uh, behavior, why so many human behaviors that seem repulsive, uh, the Lucifer principle describing like that we have this inner evil somewhere that, that or not inner, actually, that, that is projected outward in the world somewhere, and we just have to be pure of it when we put our decisions. And he really talks about, you know, if we want to improve as a race, we have to understand why, we, that there's often a good historic reason why, why animals of all kinds, including humans, act the way they do, and that we have to understand and recognize them if we're ever going to master them. And one of those things is that when you look at competition in a species, it's always when, when one comes one step up from the bottom, they're never nipping the heels right above them. They're always turning around and, and beating back what they think might be at the heels below. So you, you've always had, and he, and he details this through so many other cultures that, that non-American and further back through history, and then takes it through other animals, uh, which, which is what he does kind of all through the book. But that's a very, very, very common thing. And when you add race, in, in, really when you add anything that can differentiate the people, you know, when I grew up in Pennsylvania, it was the Irish coming into the coal mines and the Irish were not considered white then, uh, you know, and it was a lot of it was the language and, you know, we, they couldn't understand them and they thought they were stupid. And the, you know, you see the same thing today. You go and you see Mexican neighborhoods around Mexican places of employ. So like right near where we're at right now in the studios, if you just go a few blocks west and, and, and you head toward uh, McKechnie Field, you'll see a lot of Spanish signs for little, you know, uh, 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 stores and, and bodegas and um, a lot of uh, auto type places, tire places, brake places and stuff like that. And the reason being is that there are a lot of industrial places around here that hire Spanish speaking workers and they often find it difficult or intimidating to go into an English speaking store and not know what they're asking for. And, you know, sometimes frustrating the person with the language barrier. And as a result, somebody says, Hey, you know, there's a lot of Spanish workers around here. Maybe if I opened a store that, that showed that it was sort of catering to Spanish market, that would be, you know, good, good for business. And you see that a lot. I think for that reason, I think you see that that tension creates a demand and then someone recognizes it and, and, you know, comes in with the supply. And then that's sort of been the history of American neighborhoods. And you see that all over. And then those people start moving in those neighborhoods. And that's why you have little Italy's and little, you know, uh, Armenia's and, you know, little Mexico's and all these places throughout the country. They called that little Africa. Uh, of course, it had some pejorative, you know, incantations at, at that time. Um, but that's what you had here is that you had, you know, some people coming down, you know, most of these gentlemen had multiple degrees. Uh, I mean, there was a kind of a joke in, in one of the scenes where is anyone here a lawyer? And they all are. And, you know, that was true. That was just, you know, the five of the African-American men sitting in the room at that point had a lot of grief, even though some of them didn't practice. These are people that were educated at places like Howard, um, you know, that came from some of the, the, the uh, finest um, schools that would allow African-Americans uh, in at the time and uh, very, very intelligent, industrious, and educated men who uh, very quickly created an economy based on that kind of demand. Let's, let's bring this back to how this all happened. And um, maybe towards the end, once we get through the actual story, we can talk about some of the side issues that, that uh, have come up as a result of this. And I'm thinking in particular like the Oklahoma governor that was in the news 
really about this issue just recently. So that's just a tease to keep you to getting to the, to the end. But there's a whole cast of characters. Most of them uh, are actual historical figures. And, uh, some may have more uh, information available about them and some a little bit less. But uh, the, I guess the key person uh, that uh, this revolves around, that the, that the actual historical event uh, I wouldn't say he was triggered by him, but he was the scapegoat. To yeah, allow it was just it was Tinder, up. I guess, is the way that you could yeah. say it. So Dick Rowland, yeah, uh, shoeshine young man, I guess mm-hmm. we would say, and he had a nickname Diamond Dick Rowland, and it, like many stories, there's a woman involved too. So start us there with Diamond Dick Rowland. So Dick Rowland was sort of typical of a lot of young men in Greenwood at the time. He was, uh, you know, on the right track, uh, was a high school football star at Booker T. Washington High School, but dropped out because he could make more money across the tracks. So he was known as being one of the best shine boys in Tulsa and for getting better tips than everyone else. And uh, like I said, you could make more than doctors, lawyers, and business owners sometimes in Greenwood were making doing that kind of work across the track. So that was a a $5 tip when we see him at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And that came from an actual account. So it was, what would be $5? You're talking today. That would be somewhere probably around $20. I would think more, probably more than that. Yeah. When you just for inflation. So, um, the, you know, Again, you're talking like Dubai kind of money. You had people driving around in the equivalents of what would be, you know, Royals, Royces, and Bentleys everywhere. It was it was a scene that any typical American would have gotten thrown into and been like, "Where am I?" Right. Uh, so he, uh, he he's going to. Well, how does he become the trigger? There's so a you whole have, lot of you stuff have, that goes yeah, on. You have this chapter, kind of Emmett Till um, story where. Uh, it's remarkably similar, it, and, a lot, and a lot of it, unfortunately, is lost to history and, and you know, several muddled accounts of it. But you have a situation in which, you know, the uh, on Memorial Day when they're having the parade. Um, Wait a minute. Or, I'm sorry, not quite Memorial Day. So the Memorial Day parade is happening, uh, and the Shoe Shine Boys, where Dick worked, again in Tulsa, you couldn't use a bathroom if you're black. So the white man who owned the shine stand had to come up with some way where his workers could relieve themselves. So he worked some kind of deal with a guy who owned the building where Renberg's department store was housed around the corner, where on the fourth floor, there was up with some like clerical offices, there was an extra bathroom that wasn't being used. And he kind of rented it to the, uh, uh, to the owner of the shine shop and said, okay, your boys can come down here and use the bathroom. Don't make it you know, any more frequently than absolutely necessary. So Dick was going down to use the bathroom and surprise to me, uh, the elevator operator at the time, if you remember all those back then had elevator operators was a young female. I didn't know that was the thing. Uh, could have been a function of the war, you know, and a lot of guys fighting. So female are, are taking on different jobs and roles. But anyway, you have Dick going up the elevator with this young girl, Sarah Page, as the operator. And the department store is closed that day, okay, for the parade. So it's a relatively empty uh, building. And and, and if she was the regular operator, she probably knew all the the, the, men. And and there's old men that shine shoes, too, that would be going in there. So So the thinking was they probably would have known each other. 
and they and and there was some evidence to that being the case later. So uh, they go up the the to the fourth floor, and there were also published accounts of people giving testimony that that elevator would stick sometimes. You'd hit the door and it would jerk, or excuse me, once you hit the lever uh, to stop it at a floor. So the account that Dick gave, which was later corroborated by Sarah, was that when she hit the uh, lever, the elevator car sort of jumped. He fell forward and put his hands out to keep his head from smacking hers, and he kind of you know, hit her shoulder, chest area. She kind of just, ah, you know, screamed. And at that moment, it's kind of like a movie scene. The the elevator door opens. There's a Renberg's clerk standing right outside. He yells, you know, hey, somebody's attacking this woman. Get your hands off her. Call the police. Uh, Dick gets nervous, says that he wasn't. She looks flustered. The guy's screaming, call the police, call the police. So Dick decides to run, which I think is a very reasonable thing to do when you look at, you know, the fact that lynchings uh, were still happening. Still, still happens on a right. lot of episodes of uh, the news these right. days too. So you have, uh, he runs and um, now you have police get called into it. You then have probably some activist police officer types who seem to be sort of uh, really trying to insert a statement into, into Sarah Page and, you know, well, did this happen? Did that happen? Type thing, and there's a warrant put out for his arrest to have him talk to about this this possible charge. Now, at this point, you have some interesting dynamics, and that being just like here, you know, like many places in the South, the county is run by a sheriff, and there are city police departments. So at the time, uh, the Oklahoma, or excuse me, the Tulsa Sheriff's Department is a very small operation with the sheriff that basically. Um, patrols the courts and, you know, the jurisdictions outside the city in limited capacities, but it's, it's relatively small. And then you have the large Tulsa Police Department. The Tulsa Police Department is riddled with Klan members and has on numerous occasions given up prisoners to lynch mobs. So that's the thinking of what's going to happen to Dick Rowland is that he's going to get lynched. There's never going to be a trial. And there is an interesting character who's, who's, uh, uh, very integral to the story in Sheriff William McCullough. And he is one of the um, Caucasian good guys in the story in the sense that he refuses to give Roland to the Tulsa PD as one of his deputies bring him in and says he's going to be held at the county courthouse in our jail until there's a trial. Uh, and that's that. And that was very important to what else. Any, any idea why out. he made that decision? It seemed there was some tension between him and Chief Gustafson of the Tulsa Police Department. They seemed to have a bit of a rivalry. Uh, McAuliffe was voted in and out and back into office. So he he had this sort of, uh, he was one of those, and I, and I tried so hard not to try to have him come out as this like, you know, Atticus Finch type, you know, character, white savior of, of any kind. And that was one of the really dicey parts to deal with in telling the story is not trying, you know, trying real hard to tell the story in a very honest and accurate way. And it just seemed like this was a person with a good conscience who in that time and place recognized that a lot of unconscionable things were happening. And that's probably the, 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 the best explanation that I could give. All right. So we're, we're talking about this book, the, the novel that you just wrote, Burn, Black Wall Street, Burn, 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. And so now we have uh, Dick Rowland 
being held by the sheriff. Was there an attempt to uh, extract him from the? Yeah. Country? So you have you have a you have a lynch mob shows up. You have black veterans hear about this. They come down to protect him from the lynch mob. Uh, the sheriff begs them to leave before fighting starts. You have a large crowd gathering in the courtyard in front of the courthouse, getting a little growing brave as as crowds often do, starting to look more and more like a mob. You at one point have clan organizers show up from out of town offering McCulloch an easy way out. You know, we'll take care of this, turn over the boy, and you know, we'll go outside your jurisdiction and, and get it handled. Um you have a lot of things happening. And you, you you have at one point there's there's three different trips from uh, you know, squads from of blacks from Greenwood that come over to, to check at various points. And at one point, the tension sort of over overflows. And again, lost to history. We don't know exactly who shot first, but there was some fighting. There were some gunshots. Uh, both sides took fire. And then at that point, all hell really broke loose. Now that, so we still have the, the black veterans there. Yeah. And you had some black veterans the- involving in, in the shooting. You had some... Uh, some whites from in front of the courthouse. It was a few blocks from the courthouse, so that that's why there were, there were less witnesses to what actually happened. But at that point, then skirmishes start and kind of go all throughout the night until a point in which the whites arm themselves from the armory, break into stores in the city, steal guns and ammo. By the in the city, you mean Greenwood or in, in Tulsa, and arm themselves to the teeth. And you got to understand that we're really talking about. Probably like going from, uh, you know, look at a historic neighborhood, uh, like maybe um, I'm thinking in Sarasota, uh, Newtown. So it's it's in Sarasota, and you kind of cross the tracks on 10th Street, and you're in what they call what Newtown. What do we think the population of Greenwood was? 10,000. Okay. So it's so big. So a tenth of the, of the population. Yeah. So it's big, but it's like attached to the city in a sense. You just cross over the Frisco tracks and now you're in Greenwood. So a, a major railroad track runs in between them. Um, you have, and you have First Street, which is kind of, the, you know, I write it's kind of the de facto border. And it was the only integrated part of Tulsa. And that was the Vice District. You had all the, the whorehouses and the, and the you know, you got to remember we're in Prohibition. So you have speakeasies. And you have brothels and speakeasies all around Fort First Street, which black and white people would go in and interact in a in a surprisingly you know liberal way on that street. But you know, if you go north or south of it, you are in in all black or all white uh, environs. But you have you know the white people arm themselves to the teeth, break into the armory, and fighting goes on through the night and it becomes more and more militarized by the morning. You have a lot of involvement by Tulsa police officers, both on and off duty assisting, you know, the white uh, uh, terrorists is the only way to put it. And you have at one point, even, even some of the national guard uh, partaking in it. So you have a very organized state sponsored murder of mass murder of hundreds and probably thousands of, of people, we'll never know the the full number as well. But uh, certainly, the initial counts were absurd. The later agreed upon three hundred was just a, a a real like here's the minimum of documentation we could ever come up with. But when you think about how all kinds of documentation in terms of residents and workers and everything, how minimal that was compared to today when it was all on paper uh, and an entire city was burnt to the ground. Um, we'll never know 
who was lost, to be honest. So we, we have Memorial Day. We have the incidents with Derek Roland, Sarah Page. Uh, we have him in the sheriff's jail. Uh, we have the crowds assembled. We have this interaction. Was, was that be like late afternoon when the first violence started? It was early evening. So you, you were, you were just after dusk, yeah. Okay. So from that, it escalates. And this, this whole timeline of the violence there, there's, there's an aftermath, but, there's the, the, but the actual fighting and the violence, how long did that stretch? Well into the next morning. So you had um, you're fighting all through the night. And when you say fighting, and again, this is a part about being a race riot, being a battle, this was not. Uh, you had some black soldiers that were defending, attempting to defend Greenwood, but this was a mass extermination. This We have records of summary executions. Uh, there was one account, one of the most horrific ones, was an elderly couple who refused to leave the house under threat of being burned out. And that's really what they did was they just started burning the base of these large tenement buildings and you know, basically do your best either jumping out or running down the steps as best you can, but it's burning from the bottom up. And you had this one account of a elderly couple that just got on their knees and started praying and, you know, their, their skeletons were found with gunshots in the back of the head. So they were summarily executed as they prayed at their bed, you know, a couple in their seventies um, and then their house burned down. So you're talking about a massacre. You're talking about stuff on, you know, on par with what we saw in Rwanda, on par with what we saw in Nazi Germany. We're talking about some of the worst human atrocities of modern history. Uh, so to call it anything, it's it's difficult to come up with a name. It was a night of terror. I like the name Holocaust. I think that's really what it was. And I think the, the book uh, Holocaust and the Homeland really, you know, nailed it with that title. Um, and yes, it was a night of, of, of murder and, and terror. And uh, by the morning it became much more organized. So in the morning, we don't know who organized the whistle yet, but there was a large train whistle coordinated exactly 6 a.m. that didn't blow otherwise, that blew as some sort of signal. And then you had a, a uh, combined force that included National Guard soldiers, police officers, and civilians sort of attacking at, at, at the whistle sound and coming in in a really hard offensive front that, that, quelled the last of the real fighting. And then soon after you had trainer planes. And, and as you alluded to, this is the only city to this day in the United States, continental United States that has ever been bombed by airplane. And, uh, they were trainer planes from a nearby base, World War One trainer planes. And what they did was they dropped tar balls dripped in turpentine. They were light on fire. That was early, uh, uh, armament of how they would, you know, bomb things from, from planes. And that assisted in the burning that, you know, they, they had taken probably about half of a, the city down by half of Greenwood down by, by morning anyway, but the larger, and there was a fair amount of brick construction back then, uh, the larger buildings that, that were a little more resistant the night before were helped greatly by the, by these bombings. So from the, the moment in dusk when the fighting starts, it, escalates, gets more widespread through Greenwood. There's uh, the, the actual killing from the, the most horrific part, but still beyond that, there's looting of whatever wealth was there, the, uh, the envy that had built up the, well, really, humans. You know, I, 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 just in general, uh, in talking to some people, like, 
well, look who are those looters over there, you know, when they're talking about something on the news. Mm-hmm. I say they're humans because that's what humans do. We've done it for yeah. <laughs> ever. Uh, anyway, uh, so, but the, 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 at this case, it's the whites of uh, Tulsa that have the upper hand, and they're the ones looting the wealth. Uh, that they've been envious of. So you have the looting, you have the taking of the wealth, then you have the leveling of the city. At first, they're just burning them uh, individually, the, ho- the homes I'm talking about, and the businesses, and you have the destruction of, of the, the infrastructure of a, of a bustling, uh, functioning community. So by the morning, it's more of a mopping up operation. Mm-hmm. Now, they, it ha- they've been rounding up people through the night who, who doesn't... Whoever doesn't get killed gets rounded up, basically. Yeah. Um, and then, when do you know when the mopping up operation started? Because you said there were law enforcement officers, there were National Guard. Was there ever any kind of uh, share? How, how did the, the authorities that hadn't been part of the first uh, night of terror become cooperatives and... Um, well, they, they instantly the, the, created a narrative that the blacks had started it. So you had this, uh, you know, from the from the mayor down. I remember the one account that I read was by a businessman uh, who said that the mayor came up to him and said, you know, because he, he was the next day they they were starting a process that that would be in place a couple of days later where people could sign out their workers, and as long as they, you know, carried papers with them you know, for, for the undeclared future, uh, they would be able to leave the, the encampments and go back to work in the homes because that was another part was the prosperous whites kind of woke up with that hangover and then the, the bloodlust is settled. But, oh, well, oh, oh, that's like family members of people who work in our house and stuff. And they're not here today because we terrorized their city yesterday. And, well, that just won't do. So how do we get back to normal here? And, oh, I didn't realize how many of them washed dishes and prepared food and worked in all of the, the, the places that, that we paid every day. So we've got to get this place up and running again. Oh, whatever do we do? And uh, he said that when he saw the mayor, the mayor was like, you know, we just got to figure out, you know, how we're going to keep them from getting up to their old tricks again. And he was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, you know, it was only a matter of time with all this talk about, you know, equality and everything. And, you know, it's not the good ones. You know, you have that kind of talk, and it's it's the couple rabble rousers that got everybody all riled up with Probably this. Some talking. outside activists. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Mm-hmm. And Antifa, uh, right. And uh, you know, they got them all roused up, and um, you know, we just got to for their own safety get them get them you know back in line. And there was a lot taken, you know, a lot of liberties taken with that explanation, but. By the morning, they were all in this cohesive sort of script of, yeah, the the blacks went crazy and rioted last night because we had some rapist, you know, up in the uh, county courthouse and they came and tried to spring them free and, you know, shooting started. They started it. You know, people had to defend themselves and their property, you know, like some of the laws we're writing now. And uh, you had this, this swift, you know, resetting of the narrative by the next morning of, of how do we protect our fair city. Now, also in the, the post-massacre, uh, post there is a character in the, the book, uh, Red Cross nurse or, or commander of the Red Cross, a, a female, and 
you would think that they would have a pretty good idea of what happened as they're treating those people. They, there's a big, um, they use a park as sort of like a, a holding pen. Uh, pen probably is too small a word for the size. Well, of yeah, because they, they had already filled up the entire municipal auditorium that had just been built, uh, which I think housed about 5,000 people for an event. So, you know, when you talk about just open shoving people in, probably considerably more, and uh, they had filled that halfway through the evening, and then they started a large kind of like fairground park uh, as as an encampment. Yeah, and Alma is a real character, and that was, she, she some of her uh, entries into her journal and so forth were some of the uh, most fruitful, um, some of her descriptions were some of the most fruitful ones in terms of what those camps were like. So all this is in Burn Black, excuse me, Burn Black Wall Street Burn by Dennis Mitchmilly, and it's available on Amazon.com. And uh, if you're intrigued, you should definitely just click on that. I'm sure there's a preview. You can get get yourself started and You can. There's a, there's a pretty generous one since it's a, it's a kind of long book. So I think it's like the whole first chapter that you could sample on it. And uh, one thing I should probably explain, because a lot of people have asked me this question, is exactly what is historical fiction? And, you know, that's kind of a, that's a broad term where increasingly you'll see a lot of pure fiction that's just set in a historical event. And that's, that, that could be anything from like, you'll see a lot of romance in historical fiction. You'll see like, you know, a soldier in the Civil War and they'll use actual all history for the, the war part and then the whole cloth make up the characters. This is very different from that. So this is, uh, the way I, I really would probably best explain this would be to say it's dramatized history. Uh, the same approach you might take adapting real historical events for, say, a movie or a TV show or something, in that, with very few exceptions, these are all real historical characters, and the events are all tied very closely to well-documented history, but obviously there's a degree of, like, conversations that you have to imagine that we cannot know how they took place, how, who was involved, and so forth. So you have to dramatize the known with some unknown, and then there are some composite characters of much less significance that are taking a lot of actual events and just for the idea of a streamlined story, because as we talked about earlier, it's such a sprawling epic naturally. And there's so many characters. And, and I, I thank you for that compliment in the beginning because one of the hardest things was, and, and I think why a lot of writers ha had tried and, and abandoned this project was cracking that story Getting to the place where you knew, okay, this is how I tell it. That was the hardest part. Like, so I spent a year compiling and researching and just knowing the story. But then I had to take a lot of stabs at how do I not overwhelm someone? And then how do I not underwhelm the story in terms of like, I can't leave this out, can't leave that out. This is too integral. He's too integral. She's too integral. So how do you kind of not make it like, you're looking at a giant picture from six inches away. How do you pull back enough to let the reader into it without, um, you know, overwhelming them? So that was always something I was up against. And like I said, while there are some composites, including some of the white uh, villains in the book, because the unfortunate reality is not enough people were brought to justice. So you had accounts of things that were done without a historical figure to attach them to. And that's where you get like Lawton Mercer, for example, who's probably the primary villain of the story. He is a composite of a, a report that was given off one of the bandits, as they call them then, 
who tried to make an insurance claim for a, a broken or stolen rifle and was was you know asked some questions and disappeared a veteran uh so there was some of of those liberties that had to be taken but i can i can assure anybody that reads it the amount of research that w- went into it and the emphasis on not in any way embellishing or or hy- you know, using hyperbole to any way enhance the story it didn't need it well if there's a question in anyone's mind the acknowledgments are very thorough on yeah. on what were everything you were just talking about and you can you can look at several specific uh, characters there and whether how much uh, documentary evidence there was for them and how much was uh, you know you had to use your imagination for sure so um, what's what was the aftermath of all this certainly wasn't everybody lived happily ever after um, it, it actually it it's a oddly convoluted story in the sense that you know you have the place burned to the ground. You have nothing even come close to a semblance of justice for it. And then you had this long, hard-fought effort to, by the city of Tulsa to make sure that Black Wall Street was never rebuilt. They, they started with some just very prohibitive codes, um, which said nothing can be built unless it's all brick to, to prevent a similar fire again. While at that point in time, construction had moved mostly to wood frames and block. So brick was very expensive and was often used just for for you know facade frontage, and that would that would have been a death sentence to that community. Uh, and actually, Buck Franklin, who's an integral attorney in the story, uh, in the aftermath beyond what I write about, he actually took that to the Oklahoma State uh, Court, uh, State Supreme Court, and won that case and got those codes thrown out, the rezoning that would have made it mostly all industrial thrown out. And it was actually rebuilt. And um, it actually came back uh, even more prosperous at one point. With and, black-owned business? Yeah. Uh, you know what its ultimate demise was, though? It's not there today. And like so many things in Americana, its ultimate demise was the inter- interstate system and an interstate going right through it and an exit uh, an inconvenient place. And all the department stores and everything by the interstate exits that followed, and just the natural kind of death of Main Street is what what kind of took well, care of. Well, and also the integration of American integration society. as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you I'm sorry, that's an amazing. That, that, that's a especially like yeah. uh, St. Petersburg had a very vibrant and uh, um, prosperous uh, black entrepreneur class mm-hmm. there. Um, and to a lesser extent here in certain parts of Bradenton, mm-hmm. uh, there was a, a, quite a few businesses. Once people. you could be black and walk into a Kmart, it changed everything in that dynamic. You know, I, just as an aside, but, but maybe people can gather something. I, I'm older than Dennis, and the first election I voted in was for Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter was supposed to be the emblem of the New South. You know, the, the civil rights laws were in 64, 65, mm-hmm. and the... the desegregation of different uh, aspects of American life started in 68. And uh, here in Manatee County, the governor came down, Governor Claude Kirk, to stop the integration of our schools, I think, in 70 or 71. Uh, We disrupted, I think, my seventh grade quite a bit. But one of the most, uh, there was a profile of Jimmy Carter and the New South. And in one of those, you got to think of this, you're talking 1976, 75, 76. So you aren't really even 10 years out of desegregation in the South. In most places... Well, let's remember right here, the first graduating class integrated was 1970. 
Right. Manatee County. Right. That was the one that was blocked from by uh, for, for about a week and a half. We, had, we were the center of the universe, as we often are around here, with all the networks coming down to cover the, the governor. But the, the, the line that I'm thinking of, that I was trying to um, illustrate the change, wasn't, wasn't the altruism of uh, white business people in general. There was a, an Atlanta banker. And Atlanta was a financial center for the South mm-hmm. in the 70s as it, as it rose, as the new South rose. And he says, and way too candid, I used to be a segregationist, but now I'm pro-growth. Mm-hmm. It's not I used to be a segregationist, and now I've reformed, and I'm for uh, integration and equality. I'm for growth, and I can make more money and grow more business by allowing uh, – people to rise up into the middle class than by keeping them down at the sharecropper and, and poverty level wages, which I thought was, uh, even in my, my naivety of 1976, I was like, oh, I got that. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, and I guess one of the driving forces of writing this book was we have to confront the reality of how things were. And it's very easy. I still hear people in Manatee County, older white men who, you know, had it pretty decent that will tell me, I don't remember it being bad here, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, I don't remember us having much of that. I, I think the blacks had it pretty good here. And when I hear stories from the blacks of that era, uh, their memory is very, very different of that time. And it shows you, and this is an, I, I don't believe that people are being dishonest about it. I think that they've just sort of maybe consciously or subconsciously moved away from any opportunity to understand what it was like for other people during that time if they didn't see it for their own eyes or understanding how difficult some parts of what didn't seem that bad to them. It didn't have to be outward violence, but the idea of just being treated as a subhuman for so long and being and it being okay that other people didn't want you to, to participate in regular elements of society. And so the idea of, of having sort of this nuanced conversation of how bad or how bad it was or wasn't, I almost felt like, look, this is almost... I mean, if anything, I felt probably the only hesitancies that I had was it almost felt pornographic in its, you know, uh, uh, depiction of, of how raw and visceral I, I allowed it to be. Not as it's sexually explicit, let's right. be clear of that. Right, pornographic in, 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 in a sense of, you know, anything that's done that way for a sense of just to be titillating rather than... Like be, racism porn. Right. Like, like, like you were you're appealing to the racism, right. but... You're and trying to give it an yeah, and that was the thing was that it was it was not a thing that I felt you could do honor to without being brutally honest about what it would have looked like. And I can tell you that the amount of research I did, and I've done everything from read memoirs, biographies. In fact, uh, one of the the side stories from it, Buck Franklin, again that attorney I mentioned, who's a prominent figure one of his sons became national historian in under the Obama administration, John Hope Franklin, one of the top historians in American history. So that's just a nice little uh, tie-in. But John Hope Franklin then later pub, found an unpublished 
version of his dad's memoirs that was published as a biography. So I was able to read Buck Franklin's biography, but then later a letter surfaced that is now in the Smithsonian from Buck Franklin that describes that night, which is the best firsthand accounts we have of the JN-1 biplanes uh, flying in and, and bombing from above. So you, there was a lot of those things. There was a lot of unpublished memoirs or a lot of letters. Uh, believe it or not, a very fruitful source of information were insurance depositions from uh, court uh, cases. Uh, let, before we get too far away, let me go back to something sure. about Dennis the person here. So you're typing these sentences in there. Now, you've done the research. You know the vernacular of the time and you know the vernacular of our time, too. Sure. Uh, it's not hard to know what the words are. But still, as you type those from your fingers onto the screen in front of you, is there part of you that's going, like, I hope this doesn't internalize in me? Or, you know, it's, uh, where is it? Or, or a bit more, rather than internalizing it, like, where am I finding this to express it? Where, where, what part of me has it in me that I can express it on well, the page? Well, I, I grew up in Appalachia um, in a very, very, you know, backward place. It was an odd thing because there were no black people. But I still had the experience of being around people that were, by and large, very racist. So that was an odd thing to me, where it was like the vast majority of you have never seen a black person, but you still seem to have this deeply felt animus toward them. Uh, and I happened to grow up, I was very fortunate to grow up in a very progressive household where in that time and place, it was very rare that I never, ever heard the N-word in my home that that was never something that was allowed to be said was was certainly the exception, not the rule. I heard it a, an awful lot growing up from, not I'm not just saying from on the street, so to speak, but from people that were respected pillars of society. Uh, so, you know, I grew up in a place where I was very familiar with how that hate and animus could be expressed. And then a lot of it was in the research itself. And it comes to the point where it's almost the anger you get at the idea that it occurred, the shame that you feel for people that, you know, looked like you or, or uh, had some of the same advantages of you that, that, that you benefited from in terms of being of the, the majority race. Um, it was almost like a cathartic, like, no, you're going to see how bad this was and everyone's going to have to bear witness. And I wrote it, I guess to be very honest, I wanted white people to confront that and, and hear, yes, this is the way they talked and this was common and this was accepted. And you'll see there were characters that bristle a little bit, but it wasn't common to speak up and say, hey, don't say that. There were people that made uncomfortable, but they still learned to live with it uh, because that's what humans do by and large um, with few exceptions. There, there were places for real bravery and you see some of it, but there were, like happens in real life, the vast majority of humans, when confronted with the opportunity to go with the, 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 the majority or to be brave, they, you know, people of any color, creed, or background are going to go with the majority. Yeah, I almost think we need another word besides racism, like racialism, because I get so many people that I, I are more or less my age, or maybe you're right, oh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And I think that's because... With racist, with, with the term racist, you think of, I hate those people. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to say you've absorbed all the bias of growing up in this culture and all, all the subtle things that you don't 
really realize you're seeing and you internalize as you go along. And you're viewing the world in a lot of racial paradigms that you don't realize, or maybe you do realize, I, I can't read people's minds, but doing it, viewing the world through that lens is, you know, you're not, you don't hate black people or, or a black person, you don't hate white people, but you are at reacting and acting out based on those things you've internalized about the racial biases of the culture. And, and often you're just accepting them as participation because, again, you have a population, African-Americans, that are uh, 13%. So there's not an opportunity for them to wholly and completely advocate for themselves in a democracy in an effective way. There just isn't. Um, there's always going to be the need, if you're going to have social justice, of other people fighting for minorities, and when I say minorities, I don't even mean racially, even socioeconomically, you're going to need coalitions. You're going to need people who have the courage to stand up to injustice or people that are just, you know, cut from a cloth where they can't tolerate. They're just as intolerant as injustice as some people are um, to difference. And, uh, you know, th th there's a lot of honesty in the story in that sense in that, you know, you see people behave admirably, but by and large, you see people not. And I think that's probably the story of the human condition. And sometimes a new story comes along that just adds the, the right punctuation and uh, color to a, a, uh, an interview that you may be going to do and the timing of it. Uh, before I read just the sample of this story, because it ties directly to what Dennis has written about in Burn Black Wall Street Burn, um, I have to say that, that there's a whole... Uh, there's a couple different good ideas that they pick words to use as the catchphrase or the slogan that are like dooming the concept to begin with. For example, like hashtag defund police. Why didn't we come up with hashtag rethink? Couldn't have been, I, I've said safety. it before. I don't know that you could add a dumber slogan. For right. Me. And not quite as dumb, but uh, something that automatically triggers people is the term critical race theory. Because we know which race is going to be criticized. Sure. So we go, oh, I didn't do that stuff. Uh, so, but this has to do with that. And, you know, reading your book, uh, you have to do a little self-examination about the racial structure of, of, of the culture in, here in America. Anyway, there's a commission formed to observe the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre that, that you wrote about. And... It's kicked off the Oklahoma governor, Kevin Stitt, from his seat on the panel a week after he signed a bill outlawing the teaching of some race and racism concepts in public schools. A statement from the commission did not indicate the reason for the parting. A spokesman said the commission had no further comment. However, the commission project manager, Philip Armstrong, this week had sharply criticized the Republican governor for signing a bill into law that prohibits the teaching of so-called critical race theory in Oklahoma schools. The 19, this is a quote, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commissioners met Tuesday and agreed through consensus to part ways with Governor Stitt because basically if you're signing that, you're sort of missing the point of the commission. And in a letter to the governor Tuesday, uh, Armstrong said the commission is, let me make sure that's the same person I was talking about. Yes, that is who I just 
uh, quoted. Armstrong said the commission was gravely disappointed that neither Stitt nor a representative chose to attend a meeting Monday night to discuss the signing of the GOP-backed legislation on critical race theory, which examines systemic racism and how race influences U.S. politics, legal systems, society. Among the concepts that are prohibited are that individuals, so this is what the law prohibits to be taught, that individuals by virtue of race or gender are inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. So do, what if we had just substituted inherently for uh, our uh, inculcated with these theories? I don't know. Uh, your, your thoughts on this right in time for your book? Well, you, you know, obviously you're going to look at it and you can see what, where Republican GOP politics are right now. And that is a divisive issue that, that w w I think there's been a lot of floundering and that has been one thing that has kind of caught on because there's this, there's this sort of tension that takes place and you know we, we are a changing country demographically. There's no question about that. And if you look at those trends, we are you know, moving towards being a non-majority white country and I think that it's very natural. I mean, in any society that as that would happen, there would be anxiety about that change. And then when you would look and say, this one particular place was race was an oppressive majority at one time, then obviously, yeah, that might create a lot more background you know, anxiety among people that race that, well, as we become the minority, you know, what's that gonna be like? Um, and listen, I think everybody is to some extent inherently racist. I don't disagree with that. And what, I, what I'm going to go back to with that is the book I mentioned earlier, uh, Howard Bloom, uh, Looser Principle, A Scientific Under Explanation of History. And again, this is a very scientific book that really tries to take all of history and all of known biology and try to explain, and where it gets its title is, don't look for that outside evil that corrupts man, because that is why we never correct it. You know, the idea that there, the devil made me do it, that there's some externalized evil that must be defeated, we have to recognize these things are all there, and they're all, almost always there for an inherent biology or an inherently biological reason that, that helps what the animal human being is trying to do and propagate and replicate its genes, its primary drive. And it is innately, you know, in, in, in that circumstance... It is innately uh, intuitive to humans like other animals to have preferences and biases based on things being the same and different, being able to identify with something and not being able to, and trying to protect genes that you think you're related to and trying to inhibit the, the expansion of genes that you, that you feel you're not. And that, I think, I believe, is well-documented enough to understand that there's probably innate race racism, racist tendencies from all races toward the others, toward the different. Has, and that, that has been so well-established in history. And race is just the most obvious one. So it's, it's funny, like I said, when my people got here, Irish wasn't considered white. I mean, I'm, I'm sure when you remember when you were a kid, Italians weren't. I always joke and say... I'm not that old. <laughs> no, but no, my dad says that. My dad says that, um, you know, my dad is your age. And he says when he was growing up in Pennsylvania... Italians were kind of the, the same as like what Puerto Ricans were thought of today. 
in that sense. Like they were a minority that was not considered Anglo in that sense. So it was more, uh, and, and a lot of the slurs toward them came from non-Anglo type appearance things like you grease ball, you, you know, Dagos, all those things were about the fact that you had dark hair and tended to have oilier skin than us waspy folks. There, there was some way to make you different. You weren't considered our kind of white. And then one of the things that's been interesting from a, you know, a cultural anthropology perspective is that the definition of what is white continues to expand as the demographics are less favorably politically for white people and Irish and Italians and all those people from the middle of last century that weren't considered the wasp whites are now fully embraced in that tent. And that's even starting to change a little bit with Cubans are not, you know, considered as the same kind of, uh, you know, um, brown people as, uh, as say Mexicans are, uh, you know, so that, that so def- back when I was growing up here in Bradenton, mm-hmm. it was, I mean, other than the African-American population, it pretty much was waspy. So I didn't, we didn't have to uh, right. express okay. that to okay. the to Italians or, or, or Irish. There weren't any. Well, there probably were Irish, and but the the Italian population was something you considered in, in northern cities. And uh, actually, the um, no, I, I don't want to. So there's all kinds of things. So if we're hardwired, which I think we could all agree upon. Oh, I, I'm sorry. The, the, what I I took three years of Spanish in Manatee High School. I never got and, to practice once. I never. There was, you know, it was funny. Uh, uh, oh God, um, Dave Shiplet from uh, Soma and uh, Bird Rock Taco, and now with his latest Cottonmouth and Village of the Arts, was telling me he actually learned to cook Mexican, moved to California to learn Baja Mexican cuisine and all that, because he said there literally was not a Mexican restaurant when he was growing up in Manatee County. So he said, I didn't know what Mexican food was until I moved to, to California. But if we all agree that there, there, there's evidence that humans are motivated by trying to protect their gene line, their, replicate their genes and, and you know, provide for the prosperity of that line going forward, then there, there are easy identifiers like you know, color of hair, uh, language, all kinds of things that say, this is my tribe, my people. And then obviously race is like the most obvious one um, that, that could so easily be, that's not me. So when you look, I think there is a natural tendency for people to try to favor their own family. And I think that extends outwardly to, to similar uh, genetic-based you know, groups and individuals. So I think that is inherently in us. And I think it's one of those things like like everything else in humanity that rather than say, no, I'm above that, I'm somehow not, you know, uh, cursed with that, that sort of very human trait. Uh, instead of saying, okay, let's understand this. Let's recognize how silly and absurd it is in a modern world when we're, you know, way beyond, you know, these primal urges and instincts that might drive some of these behaviors. But let's not shy away from the idea that, yes, we have all kinds of, you know, inhibitors to creating a just society that are based on just hundreds of thousands of years of modern humans evolving to do certain things. And then really the last couple thousand of, of, of being really interested, not even a couple thousand, but the last really hundreds of being interested in, in justice and, and creating society. We, we might have said civilized society before, but creating some sort of just um, 
society in which we say that there are inalienable rights that everybody enjoys and meaning it, um, I think that this is all kind of new. And that's an important thing too when we look back and look at the events that happened this su last summer and say, yeah, it was just 50 years ago that we started going to school together. You know what I mean? And not, as you pointed out, not eagerly. You know, I, I just was brought to my attention recently. I didn't know this, and this is part of my own privilege and ignorance. Uh, the high school my son just graduated from. What year did what year did that start, Henry? Do you remember? Oh, I would have been right about the time they desegregated the schools. Right yeah, <laughs> so Bradenton Christian School here too. Yeah, a couple of expensive private schools um, start the same exact year that that integration well, starts. Well, I think I think where your son went, that started. The other ones were just sort of existing. In yeah, so prospering. my point is we didn't run toward integration in this area. So if, if it required forced integration by 1970, right, uh, how long would it have taken if it wasn't forced? And you, you could probably make the argument that we'd still be there. And, uh, you know, so when you look at that and then you'd say, look, just look at popular culture. Look at, look at movies from the 1980s and what was considered okay. Do you think it's a coincidence that all these cancellations are, are happening of people showing up? Oh, they went to a party in blackface in 1985. Oh, so did he. So, yeah. What does that start to tell you? That was a pretty common thing in 1984. It was not considered offensive yet uh, in uh, do you white culture. That uh, you'll feel get criticism that you uh, culturally appropriated a story that belongs to a black author. You know, the, the, there was that's that's a very interesting question because when I originally conceived this idea, I wrote a treatment for a pilot in a limited television series, and uh, when I finally got it in front of an agent, he kind of gave me a chuckle and said, "You know, I, I'm intrigued. I like it. You know, this this story's been kicked around Hollywood a lot." And uh, a lot of people have, have, you know, started project option things and, and it's never come to the screen. Uh, but let me tell you, I'm not going to be able to sell this today with a white screenwriter. And um, it's just for that reason, you know, that you're going to get, this isn't your story to tell. And I guess my answer to that is I'm a writer and, you know, I write what's in my head and it, it would be a lot easier for me if the stories were uh, a lot more... Um, pliable to to what i think would be most convenient but this story got stuck there and i wrote it and anyone else of any color or background is free to write one as well and i would just say that i think the more tellings of this the better and i'm very happy with the work that you know resulted and i think that it is a worthy addition to the conversation to what should be a broad and robust conversation with many voices uh, about this subject. Well, until you can watch the Netflix adaption of Burn, Black Wall Street, Burn, you can go to Amazon.com or other outlets and find it in both digital and print editions now. And, uh, of course, you can also go to the uh, Dennis Maley author uh, page on Facebook to see some of his other work as well as this. You can keep up to date with what Dennis is writing there. And uh, go to Amazon.com and always check in the BradentonTimes.com online to see what he's writing about in between the great works of, fic of historical fiction.
You got it. This will be my last work of historical fiction. I guarantee you. <laughs> it was too hard. But uh, I want to thank you for doing this today, Henry. For those listeners that are out there, the younger ones in particular, Henry Raines is something of a local legend to morning radio. He's had everything from the Henry Raines show to the Morning Edge on 1490 AM goes all the way back to the professional wrestling promotion in the area. So Henry is uh, as known and knowledgeable as men of Manatee County as anybody that I've ever come across. And it was always a privilege to be on your radio show. So to have you do this for me today is, is a great honor, and I thank you for it. The honor is mine. Thank you. And we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening.